This is the Graybar Sports Open Line. Goes bit swings and he hits a drive. He hits a slammer. On America's Sports Voice, KMOX. We are back at it as we get into our number two of a Graybar Sports Open Line here on KMOX. My name is Matt Pauley. Uh, coming up this hour, we've got a lot going on. Our friend Nate Gatter is going to join us in just a moment. And then later on, we'll talk with uh, Battlehawks coach Anthony Becht as uh, he is. Uh, this is a really busy time of the year for uh, I didn't even think about this until I uh, gained the chance to talk with him earlier this week. Cut down day in the NFL when NFL rosters get down to 53. That's when XFL teams and leagues like the XFL start getting an idea of players that might be available when they get to the point that they start filling out rosters. So we'll talk with Coach Beck in just a few moments. City SC, they are back at it tonight. They've got a midweek game this week as they match up against FC Dallas. That's going to get started in about uh, 23 minutes over at City Park. And to talk about that and a few other things, you hear him hosting the uh, St. Louis City Soccer Report here on KMOX. He is our good friend. Nate Gatter, and he joins us via the Quiver River Electric guest line. Nate, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Matt? I am good. These, um, The thing that I'm still trying to kind of uh, grasp when it comes to MLS soccer is the, the non-kind of normal schedule because you'll go through a while and just play in the weekends, and then all of a sudden you'll go through this period when there's a lot of midweek action. Of course, we've talked about you know the in-season tournaments and the wacky stuff like that, but just the fact that some weeks you play one game and some weeks you play two, it, it feels kind of different. How much does that impact uh, the team and the way that they have to go about things? It's funny you say that, Matt, because they've actually made relatively significant efforts uh, this season to try to standardize the schedule. Uh, for instance, there used to be a much wider variation in game times, even throughout a weekend. Um, like what time there might be five, six, seven different times on a Saturday that kickoffs were happening throughout the league. They've made a real effort uh, in part because of the Apple TV deal to standardize that. Uh, and that's why so many of the kickoffs are happening kind of in waves, more NFL style uh, than what you might be used to, say, with a college football schedule. Uh, that, as it, as it may be, I think these two-game weeks are really interesting because City, especially in the couple of instances they had them in the first part of the season, struggled with them. Um, And you could attribute that to two things. The easy one would be, well, City play a mentally and especially physically demanding style that might be difficult for these players to keep up when they're playing two. It really becomes three games in a seven- or eight-day span because you're playing at both weekends with, in this instance, a Wednesday night game in the middle. And City did not fare well in those games, including a midweek against FC Dallas away, um, with the exception of when they would play midweeks in the U.S. Open Cup. But that doesn't really count if you're smashing Union Omaha. Uh, And the other side of that, though, is that they were a much less healthy team at that time. And obviously, more minutes in a given span of time, harder to cope with if you have fewer players or fewer MLS caliber players at your disposal. This team is deeper now than it has ever been. Um, as you can tell from players like Celio Pompeo, Miguel Perez, who are struggling to Isak Jensen, Selmir Pedro, struggling to even make the bench uh, on, on game days now in MLS, let alone to get any significant time on the field. Um, so bearing all that in mind, I think tonight is a really interesting test for City, uh, coming off a, a somewhat disappointing performance in Orlando, one where they probably feel they were good enough to have gotten a point, uh, but they weren't able to do that. Uh, I think there's there's a certain amount of pressure on them. It is also worth noting that 
even though the depth is getting there, it's still not all the way, as evidenced by the fact that Joachim Nielsen is not starting at center back in this game, and Joao Klaus is still not fit to start at striker in this game, even though he made his return against Orlando, and, uh, and Nielsen, of course, started in that game. So they're still building back to full fitness. So well. Every player is quote-unquote available, and there are no players who are injured in the sense of being completely out. Those are still two critical players who are something less than 100%. So that the, the matchup against Orlando, which they lost 2-1, if that game looks more like the Austin game where they got out to a really big lead, do they use players differently and that could impact tonight where because that was such a tight matchup, they probably weren't able to think about today's matchup too much in the way that they utilize players? I think you're right about that. I don't think it would have changed a whole lot because Klaus only came on toward the end of the game anyway. Uh, so you were always just going to get him his however many minutes they had decided ahead of time. And in Nielsen's case, I think uh, same thing. You know, they took him out uh, just past the 70-minute mark um, at, at the weekend against Orlando. Uh, I think probably that's pretty much predetermined. And I've always thought, I mean, I was never a player, uh, really a soccer player at all, and never a player in any sport anywhere close to their level. I've always thought, though, if I were coming back from an injury, I'd probably rather start and play the first half than come off the bench and play, you know, the final 30 minutes just to have the true routine of knowing exactly when the game's going to start. For the same reason, I think it's much easier to be a starting pitcher than a relief pitcher. You know when you're going to pitch. You know not only the day but the exact time of day well in advance. You can time your pregame down to the minute starting three, four, five hours before the game and do everything exactly how you want to do it. Um, that's just not realistic coming on as a substitute because you never know how the game's going to go. So I, I think probably not. I think they're they're keeping a careful eye on both of those guys. I think it's a precarious situation for Bradley Carnell and the City Brain Trust at this point because on the one hand, this team is virtually assured making the playoffs. And I think they have a very, very good chance, I would say 90%, if not 95-plus percent chance, of finishing in the top four in the Western Conference, which would guarantee home field advantage, at least in that quarterfinal round of the Western Conference. So you don't want to push Nielsen and Klaus so hard that you jeopardize their ability, uh, availability for the playoffs, right? This is a team that now can start to think, has the luxury of starting to think about how do we make sure we're 100% come playoff time. By the same token, though, I think especially if City are going to be able to beat the LAFCs and Seattles of the world, it's going to be critical to have home field advantage. So if they can find a way to get the number one seed in the Western Conference and ensure that if they end up playing a Seattle in the conference semifinals or if they are able to get to that Western Conference final and almost certainly find LAFC waiting there, that that game will be in St. Louis and not in L.A. Because I think if it's in L.A., they lose flat out, period. I think if it's in St. Louis, they really have a puncher's chance. So what I'm saying is, Obviously, the priority is being fit in the playoffs, but a close second is trying to get that number one seed because I think if they get the number one seed in the West, they are a serious MLS Cup contender. If that seed drops to even three or four, I would still like their chances to advance a round or two, but I think their path is is ultimately made very difficult by one or more West Coast road trips just to get to the MLS Cup final. I know a game is on at the schedule and you can't control who's coming up in front of you, but... Is there almost added importance to tonight's game when you look at the gauntlet that they've got to run in the month of September? It, it really is a gauntlet, especially considering that they don't have a lot of home games left. That's the other part is, is that their their home schedule was a little bit front-loaded, or really it was middle-loaded. They played a lot of home games there in, in the middle third of the season. 
Um, the good news is they have their remaining games against LAFC and Seattle in the regular season, both at home, in addition to the third and final game against Sporting Kansas City. Um, yes, I think there's a lot of importance on this game, especially because the FC Dallas game away is maybe the worst game City have played. Now, it was a weird game because there was that lightning delay early yeah. in the second half, so it was subdivided <laughs> into two games, really, and they had to make a whole separate trip to finish the game. Uh, so I appreciate that that was it, it maybe a little bit unfair to judge them uh, on how that game went. It was just wacky all the way around. But this, I'd like to see a much, much better performance tonight against an FC Dallas team I think they can beat. And throughout this season, to be fair to City, when they've needed big responses, they've almost always gotten them, especially in home games. They've, they've, their get-right games, if you will, have almost always come at home. I think they've done a really good job of using City Park and using the St. Louis crowd to their advantage. They need to do that again tonight. I think if they can get the three points tonight, they put themselves in a good position to get the three points this weekend against Sporting Kansas City, something I expect them to do. I think there will probably be a lot of St. Louis folks who make that trip west uh, for the game on Saturday. If they get their next six points, my goodness. I mean, they're almost they're locked into the playoffs at that point, and they are almost locked in, I think, to a top-four seed, and they can start to really get excited about what's left. In a recent press conference, Klaus really detailed the extent of his injury, the pathway through it, why they thought that he might come back sooner than he did, and just, just everything. And I love I athletes don't have to be that forthcoming. I get that. And it's it's injury information. So, you know, almost by law it's it's personal. But man, I just I so appreciated the way he went through that. Did you have the the similar kind of thoughts? Yeah, and, and I feel for him, too, right? Because I think people get frustrated when they hear a timeline and then they hear another timeline and they hear a third timeline. But those soft tissue injuries, particularly hamstrings and quads, and it was the quad that he was dealing with, are notoriously so difficult to predict, so difficult uh, to recover from and to rehab. Um, and you have to imagine nobody's more frustrated than he is, right? It's, it's not more painful for anyone than the guy who's literally going through the pain of injury and rehabilitation and then going through the emotional pain and frustration of not being able to be on the field doing what he loves, uh, especially in such an important season when the team is playing well and there's so much energy around the club. On top of that, to see fans, and I don't think fans were out there getting frustrated with him per se. They were just disappointed he wasn't coming back. Nobody was blaming him. They were just disappointed the timeline kept getting pushed. But still, to see that angst, when he's already dealing with what you think is a fair amount of internal frustration and turmoil must be so emotionally challenging. It's something we don't talk about a lot, the emotional side of an injury for a professional athlete. But it's always, in my mind, uh, been, been something that must be just so difficult to deal with. Uh, I'm happy for him that he's close. And ultimately, I think he and they and the fans will be grateful for the relatively conservative approach that City took here because the worst-case scenario would have been rushing him back and getting a great month out of him and then having him re-injure himself, and ultimately you're missing a really impactful player in the playoffs. The priority has to be, above all else, even above that number one seed, as, as important as I think it is, the number one priority is to be 100% healthy come the end of the season, late October, going into November in the playoffs. All right, we'll switch gears for just a moment. Uh, are, you, are you ready for the Missouri football season? Are, are you going to the game? Big watch party at Casa de Gatter? What, what's going on for tomorrow? Uh, I actually will not be able to watch the very beginning of the game, um, but I should be able to watch most of it. I am excited. 
Uh, I think I was more excited before I saw the Vegas line for the season was six and a half wins. Mm. I was more optimistic than that. But usually those guys have a good idea what's going on. Um, I think, you know, between you and me, that uh, it probably has to be a winning season for Eli Drinkwitz this year. Uh, I do think six and six and a bowl win. So a seven and six finish probably keeps him, especially because he continues to make his mark on the recruiting trail. Uh, but I think for a lot of Mizzou fans, it's, it's show me time, right? Don't show me a recruiting uh, mark. Don't show me a recruiting ranking. Show me win. And that's, uh, you know, that's the job that, that he signed up for. Uh, I don't, if you drive by for Field, I don't think they could plaster the word show me on the stadium any more times. So <laughs> it's time. Show me. It's, uh, man, it's so tough. And you're right. It's the job he took and you're in the SEC and that's what it is. But if, I live in a world where if I get better at something, I want to quantify it. And it really feels like Missouri can be a better team and it not be quantifiable in terms of wins and losses. And that's very frustrating. Yeah. To me, that's the goal is quantify it. The goal this year in my mind is eight wins, including a bowl game. So, you know, seven and five in the regular season and a bowl win would be great with me. Eight and four in the regular season and a bowl loss. Also fine. If they get to eight wins, I consider that a rousing success. If they win seven, I would say just enough for him to stay. If they don't get to seven wins, I think he's got to be done. And it's unfortunate because I do think he's he's created a lot of energy around the program. But ultimately, if you can't win games, that energy starts to feel contrived in some ways. Um, It'll be exciting, though. And and I do think, you know, they have a, a chance here with these first couple of games to get in rhythm, hopefully find a quarterback. I've always hated the we're going to go into the season with two quarterbacks and see what happens approach, especially with college kids who I think are more prone to those sorts of distractions and, and need consistency and structure and leadership that comes from having a defined option. Uh, and in my mind, we've seen Brady Cook, and Brady Cook is a six or seven win kind of quarterback. It might Sam Horn be even worse than that? I don't know. But he also might be better. I think we know Brady Cook is not better than a six or seven win quarterback. I'd like to see enough of Sam Horn in these first two games to give him a real chance. Because to me, he at least brings upside that we know Brady Cook doesn't have at this point. All right, I'm going long with you, but I want to go through this real quick. Uh, Of their first five games, I think they've probably got four wins there. South Dakota, Middle Tennessee, Memphis, and Vanderbilt. Now I'm biased because I'm a K-State. We're going to make easy work of the Wildcats. I'm a K-State grad, so I don't think they're going to beat them. But I admit my biases when they're there. But K-State's going to be pretty good this year. They're the preseason number two team in the Big 12. So let's say they win four of their first five. That means they need to win three out of LSU, Kentucky, South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Florida, Arkansas. It's it's not easy to find three wins in that group of games that I just mentioned. No, it's not. To me, the the swing game, so I, I think it's fair to chalk up South Dakota, Middle Tennessee, Memphis, and Vanderbilt as likely wins. Memphis is maybe pushing it. It's, it's not a bad Memphis team, but I still think Mizzou has the de facto home field advantage there, and, and I like their chances. I also think it's fair to put up Tennessee, Georgia, LSU and probably Kentucky since it's an away game as losses. Well, let's say Kansas state as a loss as well, just to make it easy. So let's say four and five, if you put Kentucky as a loss, then you need two or three out of South Carolina, which I think is winnable at home, Florida at home, Arkansas on the road, maybe that Kentucky game away to me. It's it's the Kansas state game at home, South Carolina at home, Florida at home and Arkansas away. Those are the swings. Yeah. To me, it's, it's four wins, four losses. And those four, Maybe plus the Kentucky game away. Maybe you add that in. But I prefer making 
home games against good teams who would be neutral site favored, I prefer to make those the swing games rather than going on the road because I just I think it's tough to pull off a, a result as a road underdog in college football. As a home, even light underdog, I think it's much more feasible. All right, fair enough. Nate Gatter, you hear him here on KMOX with the St. Louis City Soccer Report. Thanks so much for taking some time, and uh, we'll talk to you again real soon. Sounds good, Matt. All right, there's Nate Gatter joining us here via the Quiver River Electric Guest Line. We'll come back, and we'll be joined by uh, XFL Battlehawks head coach Anthony Becht. I got the opportunity to talk with him earlier this week at Bush Stadium. He was out there throwing a first pitch and doing a few other things. He made the rounds. He was over at uh, Worldwide Technology Raceway uh, for the IndyCar race last weekend, and then he was at Bush Stadium. So uh, it was great to see him. You'll hear my conversation with him in just a moment. It's a Graybar Sports Open Line right here on KMOX. A great bar sports open line does continue. We're real happy to uh, welcome on to the program. He is the head coach of the XFL Battlehawks. He is Coach Anthony Beck. Coach, uh, great to see you as we uh, record this at Bush Stadium earlier in the week. How are you? Uh, doing well, Matt. It's great to be here. Um, I get to redeem myself again and on the mound. <laughs> Last year, I was a little inside. I probably overdid it a little bit. So uh, coming in with a new enthusiasm to get one over the plate. I know you've been doing some uh, some broadcasting. Yeah. What's um. What's it like for you? I have to think that a lot of NFL folks have taken note of what's going on with the XFL and with the Battlehawks. What are you hearing as you see NFL folks for the first time in a while? Yeah, no, I'm mean, I'm just a lot of uh, congratulations. I mean, obviously, you know, we we led the charge as far as just the fan base in general. I think a lot of people were just excited about what they saw from the from the fan base. And then of course, when you have 14 players get signed uh, to the NFL, your your team obviously is good. So we had a great staff. Uh, my coaches did a hell of a job getting the guys ready to go. We built a really good culture in a short amount of time, and I'm just proud of them. I mean, I, you know, I want them all to play in mm-hmm. the NFL. You know, I know a lot of St. Louis fans have, you know, maybe messaged me on on Twitter and Instagram talking about, well, if we lose these guys, how are we going to recoup? But there's a lot of players out there that are hungry. So if they make the team, you know, it's great for their career. If we have to bring them back, then they get to come back with us. We 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 have their rights. So uh, either way, it works out for us. We'll, we'll reload if we have to. If we don't, then we'll get some of those uh, familiar faces back. You talk about that pride. What's it like for you each time you find out one of your guys has gotten signed by an NFL team? Uh, I love it, man. It's um, you know a lot of these guys are getting a second chance. You know they were there one time and they didn't get that opportunity. And a lot of guys are getting it for the first time. Uh, that's what our league is all about. Um, you know I'd love to keep our guys for year in and year out, but you know. You know, clearly, you know, these guys are missing something. I think in the beginning of the year, that's what we talked to them about. It's like, look, there's something in your game that's missing. It could be mentally, physically. Uh, you know, it could be, you know, maybe you don't even know what it is. And, you know, we tried to find those things, fill those holes for them, and then let them go do their thing and, and give them the opportunity to showcase their skill set every single week in the XFL. And guys took uh, advantage of it. And, you know, I think the biggest thing for me to sell to the guys was, you know, individually, I know all you guys want to have – the great stats, you want to be the guy. But if we win collectively and uh, we are a good team, more eyeballs will come on all our players. So they bought into that, and uh, guys had a lot of individual accolades throughout the season. A.J. McCarron had a great season. A lot of our rece- Four of our receivers got signed on, uh, with NFL contracts, so we're really proud about that. And, um, you know, we'll see. Like I said, it's, uh, it's a great feeling to know these guys get that chance and, and that this league's being taken seriously by, by the next level. You talk about finding that missing thing. Is that 
Is that where having a really good coaching staff also comes into it because a lot of your position coaches are working more directly with the guys on an everyday basis? Take a lot of pride in the guys that I hire to, you know, positionally on what they do, what they've done in their career. If, you know, we're a lot of former players. I got a good mix of like older veteran coaches, but um, just I've seen a lot of different places. You know, I've been played for five organizations, um, you know, seven head coaches, a couple firings <laughs> at some of the places in those five places. And I've got to see a lot of coaches do it their way and I was collected a lot of that information and some of it was good some of it was bad I'd never do it I'd do it I'll add it in and then it's like what do I want you know what do I think is right and you know this this generation of player you know how they're motivated uh you know what they want you know I think for me it's like you got to try to be a little bit of everything as a head coach you can't be like the the strict guy you can't be just a the personable players coach you got to have a good mix of everything and that's what I tried to do and it worked well for us uh, year one what's the downtime for for you when it comes to the battle Hawks is it once the NFL season gets started like wh- when do you breathe a little bit well right after the season this past you know when May came we didn't make the playoffs obviously came short because of uh some uh technical difficulties yeah. with the with the scoring or whatnot uh that's when our downtime begins I mean obviously we got to evaluate a lot of the guys that did you know went to a mini camp. So there's three drafts. There's a, a draft after minicamp for guys that didn't get drafted, that went to a minicamp that didn't get signed. So we picked up 10 players from that batch of players. Then we have a show, our showcases throughout the summer. There's six of those, I believe. And then we had a combine. Then we had another draft. And we, you know, we picked up another, I think, five to eight guys. And then we'll have another draft in October where we'll look at all the preseason guys that got cut see who wants to actually come play in our league, retain their rights, try to bring them on. And then uh, we may have one more supplemental you know, after the season because guys get picked up during the year. They want to wait it out with the NFL. If it works out for them, if it doesn't, they can come and play for, for our league. So uh, that's kind of how it breaks out. I mean, this is where I do the meat and potatoes for me is now because – I want all these guys that are like coming out of preseason football. They're the closest guys. Mm-hmm. Those are the guys to me that I have a lot of interest in, especially now that you know we only need some spots to fill. These are the more important players that I'm looking at to kind of fill our roster. Just a couple more minutes with uh, Battlehawks coach Anthony Beck. To me, this is really simple when it comes to the playoffs. Take the division winners and then go by record from then. Are they going to change the stupid rule that got kept you out? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I thought we were. Uh, you know, I'm sure it's under discussion a little bit more. You know, I, I missed the player, uh, the coaches' meetings a couple weeks ago at the combine because of a family, a personal thing. But um, you know, look, I, it makes sense. I mean, we just don't know who's going to be good every year. The the movement of players. I mean, it it makes sense if we've been around for years. And okay, yeah, there's always going to be a good two teams in each side. But you're right. I mean, first and second place, they're in, and then just start reseeding them, and then we would have had no problem. Uh, getting in, but uh, you know, look, Arlington, of course, shocks the world. Mm-hmm. They're the oddball that didn't have a you know a 500 better record, and they win the championship. So go figure. So, uh, but it, you know, like I said, when you're seven and three, uh, you just feel like you know you deserve to to get into that into the show. So, uh, well, look, we got to win one more game next year, and that's what we'll have to do. Battlehawks fans are the best out there. There's already a lot of season tickets. Yeah. We're going from a renewal standpoint, but uh, people who want to purchase them for the first time can do that. XFL.com, check it out. Our tickets have been awesome. We're always trying to fill it fill it even more. The Dome, the fans, everybody that came out last year, truly appreciative on what they did, and uh, we got to bring it even better next year. Coach, great to see you. Thank you. Coach Anthony Beck from the uh, Battlehawks says, will be XFL season before we know it. Got the chance to uh, catch up with him earlier this week. He was out at uh, Bush Stadium doing a lot of things, including uh, throwing out a first pitch, which went okay for for him. It wasn't great, 
But you know what? He doesn't have to throw it. By the way, speaking of first pitches, it was KMOX day today, and uh, Chris Ranji and Amy Marks, of course, each threw out a first pitch. They credit where credit's due. Pretty solid. Pretty solid for uh, for those two. It was a fun KMOX day. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. We'll continue to talk uh, some Cardinals baseball. Uh, a few thing, more things to get to before we are out of here for the night at 8 o'clock. It's the Graybar Sports Open Line right here on KMOX. This is the Graybar Sports Open Line. Goes with swings and he hits a drive. He hits a slammer. On America's Sports Voice, KMOX. Back at it here on a Wednesday night, a full two-hour program coming up tomorrow. Do want to let you know from about 7 to 7.30 tomorrow, Stan McNeil, senior writer with uh, Cardinals Magazine, they just released the Cardinals uh, yearbook here recently with some really awesome stuff in it. Stan's going to join us for a full half hour uh, coming up tomorrow evening, and he's going to share some of the stories and maybe some of the things that didn't make it into uh, the yearbook. So make sure to be tuned in that uh, coming up uh, tomorrow during the program. We mentioned the KMOX Day was today at Bush Stadium. It's all... it's fun because we did a live broadcast up there. Tom Ackerman did a, uh, a little montage of some of the most famous Cardinals calls that have aired on KMOX towards the end of the pregame show today, which he did a, a fantastic job being able to put that together. And it just it it reminds you the importance of this radio station and what it means to folks and Cardinals baseball and everything that goes along with it. And people, there was the, uh, the Stein that was given away. Uh, that was kind of a remake of a Stein that a lot of people had, uh, back in the, uh, back in the nineties and, Matt Pajeski, you fa- you finally got to experience a KMOX day for the first time. Generally, you work nights, and the last couple of years, KMOX day has been a night game. This year was a day game, so you got to go to your first KMOX day. It was fantastic, Matt. Hanging out in the suites with my fellow coworkers. It was a good time. Got a KMOX sign, like you said. Good food in the suites. Walk-off winner. What a great day. You still complain about the fact that nobody ever gave you a T-shirt from last year. That's true. I have yet to receive a Mike <laughs> Shannon T-shirt. What else was there? There's some other giveaways I have not gotten. People but... uh, people around here hold on to those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah those, are, those are quality items. The uh, th- A few years ago, there was, wasn't the uh, Rooney Shannon bobblehead? Uh, bobblehead. Yep. Wasn't that a KMOX yep. Day giveaway? Don't have one of those either. I mean, they're still sitting around. If you really want to find one, you can probably find one around no, here. I-, I want it to be given to me. Okay. I don't want to ask. Okay. I'm going to feel appreciated. Fair enough. So, Ronj and Amy threw out the first pitch, or threw out first pitches. I thought they should have done it together, like bring two catchers out there and did it in tandem. Uh, they did not, but they they were, for the most part, able to uh, to get them across the plate. Yeah, they were both on the rubber. No, nobody scooted up a little bit to uh, to cheat their way to the to the plate. Very proud of them. They both threw strikes, and I heard Ronji kind of brushed Fredbird off the plate. I think Fredbird was uh, getting a little too, a little too inside, a little too close mm. to the plate, and you know, Ranji had to give him a little, uh, "Hey, how you doing?" A little chin music. I heard. What are you like a like a gangster now? I, the way no, you were talking. Know. I don't know. What was that? I don't know. <laughs> So yeah, it was it was a good KMOX day. We got to meet a few folks uh, before the game uh, when they were doing the uh, the live broadcast up at the Budweiser Terrace. So yeah, good good KMOX day all the way around, and we certainly appreciate everybody who did uh, make their way out. Got a text message earlier, and I was glad that I did because it, it got into something that I wanted to to get into because there was a lot of talk yesterday. The Angels 
uh, put on waivers a ton of guys, including uh, Lucas Giolito, a former Cardinal, and Randall Gritchick. Then we found out that Harrison Bader had been placed off waivers uh, by the New York Yankees. And sometimes I feel like I'm an, on an island on this take, but after what just happened, it feels like a few more people are coming along with me. Previous to a few years ago, baseball had two trade deadlines. You had the deadline at the end of July, the standard trade deadline where anybody could get traded, but you had the second trade deadline where players who passed through waivers could then be traded. And I loved that trade deadline. More often than not, it was expensive players, expensive veterans that are maybe having somewhat down years. They get placed on waivers. There's teams out there that don't want to pick up their salary. So once they are able to pass through, you're able to work out a deal. And generally, more often than not, the former team would hold on to some of their money, uh, hold on to some of the salary. So that would make it out work out from a money standpoint. And there have been some very impactful players, players who have had large roles in playoff races who were trade traded at that August 31st trade deadline. And Major League Baseball wanted to simplify things, and they got rid of that trade deadline. And I always thought that was a bad decision. thought it was a really bad decision for two reasons. A, uh, there's going to be more teams that really know their postseason fate at the end of August then know their postseason fate potentially at the end of July. So there's teams at the end of July that might be a little iffy on what they want to do in terms of the deadline. There's more there's more vision in the teams that are legitimately in a playoff race. So that that allows those teams to possibly make a move. It gives a chance for veteran players who are on non-competing teams to end up on a competing team. And then I'm I'm somebody who's always wanting to push the game of baseball. What is best to grow the game? And I thought that at a time of the year where the spotlight is starting to be put on the game of football and as college football is getting underway and the NFL is right around the corner and there's a lot of talk about training camps and things like that. And I know we don't talk about that as much here in St. Louis, but from a national standpoint, we know about the impact of football. We know about the, the NFL. It was just a chance for baseball to, for at least a moment in some of these markets, grab a little bit of that spotlight back. Grab a little media attention at least for a day. So I thought it was it was placed well at a time where baseball is fighting for every ear and every eye that it can get. It was a chance to to put some focus back on it. So those were always the reasons that I thought they should keep the August 31st trade deadline. Then we saw what happened, where teams just said, you know what? We're not in this thing. So we're just going to put a bunch of players on waivers and hope that some of them get picked up by other teams, and this is just a straight salary dump. That's what the Angels are doing. That's what the Yankees were doing. That's what the, what the Mets were doing uh, with the players that, that got placed onto waivers. All those teams are hoping is that another team in baseball will put a claim in on one of their players, and they can just pay you. When, when you do that, then you're going to take on their salary. And all teams are hoping for is a little bit of salary relief. Anybody who says that that was done for any reason other than money, they are lying to you. And 
from a competitive standpoint, I don't like how that ends up playing out. And we'll see how many waiver claims are actually put in on, on any of these handful of guys that that end up uh, you know being placed on waivers, but it's a really weird situation where you know bad teams could go pick them up. There's a lot of Cardinals fans that would have loved to have seen the Cardinals grab Lucas Giolito. Giolito's probably better than a lot of what's going out there on a, on an everyday basis since is for starting pitching. At the same time, there's value in the Cardinals giving innings to Zach Thompson and Dakota Hudson and, and, and Matthew Libertor and Drew Rahm and those guys just to kind of learn what you have for next season. But it's all of a sudden these players are going to be made available. There's this influx of talent that's basically available for the taking, and it's just going based off your waiver priority. And I don't know. I don't like that. I, I, I like trades being made. I like deals being made. I don't like the idea that there's going to be some teams out there that maybe get the opportunity to push themselves forward more because of the fact that they have not played as well as other teams that would also like those kind of players. So I would, not that my voice is carrying that far, but man, oh man, would I implore Major League Baseball to consider bringing back the August 31st trade deadline because, I mean, it's it's not a great travesty. It's it's it, we're, Nothing tragic is going on here. But I just, I don't like the way this played out. And while those teams can't say anything but that it's just a money dr- dump, that they're trying to dump salaries here when they put these players out there, at least, at least when the waiver trade deadline is going on, those same teams can kind of grit their teeth and you know get something back for these players where it looks like more of a true baseball move, that there is a trade that is happening as compared to what we saw over the last few days. So I don't like this. I think it's a path. Uh, maybe baseball didn't see this happening. If there's anything about owners in baseball, if there's a chance to make more money or lose less money, more often than not, they're going to try to do it. So if you're a team that's not contending and you got some high-priced players on your roster that aren't especially performing and you think by placing them on waivers and just giving them away for free if another team will pick up their contract, if you think you can save a few bucks on that, especially on a year where you're not getting into the playoffs, that is going to happen. And I don't like that. I, I just I don't like that. I don't think it's good for the game of baseball. And I'd like that August 31st trade deadline to return so we can at least go back to, you know, these guys could be available via trade as opposed to just being cut loose in the fashion that they were. All right, we'll take one more break. And when we come back, we'll wrap up this edition of the program. It is a Gray Bar Sports Open Line. My name's Matt Pauley. We're back with more in just a moment right here on KMOX. It's the Graybar Sports Open Line. Goes mid swings and he hits a drive. He hits a slammer. On America's Sports Voice, KMOX. Starting to wrap things up on this edition of a Graybar Sports Open Line here on KMOX. Again, another full two-hour program coming up tomorrow. That's going to feature uh, Stan McNeil. From 7 to 7.30, we're going to do a full half hour with him 
in studio as we uh, go through uh, much of what is in the uh, Cardinals yearbook, which is really, really put together well. So he is going to uh, join us coming up tomorrow and uh, look forward to being able to have him on. Also, uh, Will Leach is going to join us at 620 tomorrow. John Parado is going to join us at 635 to talk Pirates baseball as the Cardinals and Pirates get set to open up a series against each other beginning on Friday. Don't know if you saw this story, but this is when creating a Twitter burner account can cost you your job. Eric Lewis, an NBA referee, last year in the NBA playoffs, a Twitter account was found that was always defending him, and it was always defending him in a way that looked a little bit suspicious, and Twitter sleuths were able to put two and two together and say, this is an Eric Lewis burner account. And he was not assigned to the NBA Finals after that. The NBA launched an investigation, and now we find out the NBA has ended that investigation, but he's retiring. They say they didn't find anything for sure. That certainly feels like, hey, if you retire, we're not going to embarrass you. Conspiracy theorist in me says that's what happened. So that's when creating a Twitter burner account can cost you your career. Eric Lewis, a decorated NBA official, his career officially comes to an end and seems to be connected to a Twitter burner account, allegedly. That's it for this show. We'll talk to you tomorrow here on KMOX. KMOX.